All right, kids ages 3 to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, if you've got a Bible with you, you can open it to the book of Romans. If you don't have the Bible, obviously it's right there, uh, but it's also in your, in your uh, order of worship, your bulletin. If you don't own a Bible, we've got a few on the back table we'd love to give you. Please don't leave here without one. We, we think it's important for you to have it. As, uh, as you're doing that, let me remind us what we're doing during this time. I said, I said last week, if you were here, um, that bad news or good news without bad news makes no sense. Right? Good news without bad news doesn't make any sense. If, if, that is why the first three chapters of, the, of Paul's letter to the Romans that we're going through during, during this season uh, are dedicated to help, helping us understand what our problem is as a people. What's the bad news? Why is, the, why is the, the work of Jesus such good news? One of the reasons I think Christianity is misunderstood in our culture is that there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it says our problem is. That's why we're in the middle of this and it's taking us a while. Because you see, the Bible talks about two kinds of lostness. The first is that kind that most of us just kind of assume, right? That's the life off the rails uh, train wreck, right? Train wreck Thing, train wreck lostness, and that's that's what's covered in chapter one of Romans. Um, that's the outwardly rejecting God kind of lostness. But the second kind of lostness is actually uh, more dangerous. It's more dangerous because it's a little more insidious, a little more difficult to see. That's the religious kind of lostness. See, I would argue that religion is a time-tested method to keep God away from you. Because as long as you have all of your religious functions, why do you need Jesus? Why do you need God? So chapter 2 is about this kind of lostness. It's about the kind that looks godly. So if you have your place in Romans 2, let's stand. That's our habit here in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading a, a bigger chunk, verses 12 to 29. And before I do that, let me just remind us. That this is God's word, friends. This is not something the church chose for itself, uh, but it actually lays claim on us. It is the Lord speaking to us. And some of us don't believe that here, and that's fine. That's okay. But I would encourage you to, to think of it in that way as you hear it read. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God... But the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know His will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of, the, of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as a circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew... A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Would you pray with me? Father, over this, we ask your blessing. We're coming into this room with lots of different uh, expectations, lots of different experiences. Some of us uh, walking with Jesus for as long as we can remember. Others of us, um, yeah, no, not so much. Just trying to figure out what this is about. Some of us have thought we've been walking with Jesus when in reality we've just been really good. I pray that you would meet us in this, that you would preach your gospel to us, that you expose those places that we need to uh, return to you and seek repentance about, but also, Lord, that you would apply to us the gospel, that in all of these things we might have the hope that's born not in what we have done, but what you, Jesus, have done for us. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. And so this passage can be really confusing. Uh, I said that last week because both of these passages here in chapter 2, there are some things that are said that if you've been a Christian a long time, been in an evangelical church, or it's just going to sound strange because we're going to compare, you're going to compare those things with other things that Paul says in this letter, uh, things that he says in other places, things that we've already read this morning, like th- stuff along that line. It just sounds weird. It sounds strange. And that is why context is so important in understanding the Bible. Right? If, you've, if you've never been a student of the Bible, uh, let, me, let me give you just this, this little nugget. Um, context is super important. When you pull verses out of their context and use them to prove something, you may in fact be teaching something completely opposite to what that passage is trying to communicate. And here in this passage, what's going on here is that Paul is trying to answer the question, the worldview question, of what is wrong. And he's establishing the fact that humanity has a universal problem. Universal. Which means not those people over there, but all of us. So when we read this passage, we need to be asking the question, how does this contribute to the argument that he's, that's being made? And the point here this morning is that religious performance can never satisfy the need that we have. Because no amount of performance can change your heart. So we're going to look at this passage in three ways this morning. Um, we're going to look, and there's an outline in your bulletin if, you, if you'd like to use that. We're going to look at true equality. Okay. Then next, we're going to look at true, false spirituality. And then lastly, true Christianity. Okay. True equality, false spirituality, and true Christianity. So let's start with the equality. Last week we left off with the statement, some of you will remember this, that God, for God shows no partiality. Remember that? Uh, that was, that was uh, the, the issue that was going on when Paul said that is partiality when it comes to judgment. And if you were a Jewish person in the first century, you would have completely disagreed with that statement. Because the world is made up of two groups of people, if you're Jewish in the first century. It's Jews and everybody else. We call them Gentiles, right? Um, ethnically, that's every, pretty much everybody in this room, would be my guess. 
If you're Jewish, you're thinking, you know, God gave your forefathers revelation of, of himself, of told them how he wanted to be worshipped, of what we were made to be like, and he gave them this special promise-bound relationship called a covenant? Isn't that the definition of partiality? And the answer is yes and no. Look how Paul answers that in verses 12 to 13. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Now stop there real quick. When Paul says law, um, he's talking about uh, God's revealed standard. Okay, so uh, there are a bunch of these in the Old Testament, a bunch of like you can you can um, go through and list a ton of these. But primarily when he's talking about the law, he's talking about uh, God's revealed standard for what humanity was made to be. We call it like the Ten Commandments. Right. This sentence is important that Paul just said, because what he is saying is that not having the standard does not mean that you are not culpable for it. But remember, if you've been here, God revealed himself such that no one is without excuse. So I know that strikes us a little funny sometimes. We're like, Can't have the, if I don't have the standard, how can I be culpable for it? Well, Paul's already said that no one actually has excuse uh, throughout the world because God has revealed himself. So, so far, what, what Paul is saying already sounds like something you'd hear in religious circles, Right? Those, those awful people out there, God's going to judge them because they will perish apart from the law. But then he continues. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, the important thing about God's revelation, the important thing about God's standard is not having it, just doing it. Right? It's not hearing it, it's actually accomplishing it. That's the important thing. To have it and not obey it simply means that you're going to be judged by it. Does that make sense? Okay, so let me explain a couple of these churchy words here for those of us who aren't familiar with them. He uses two words in here. He uses righteous and he uses justified. And those are, those, um, we, we might think we understand what that means, but my guess is that we're probably all a little confused. The word righteous means faithful. That's all it means. It means faithful. And in this context, it means faithful to God's covenant, to his, his um the, the promise-bound relationship that we have with him means faithful to that covenant, keeping the law of God. And that word justified is a, is a word that you probably hear a lot. If you've been in church a long time, you've probably heard that a lot. It, it means uh, being in the right with God, being in right relationship with him. It means being judged faithful or righteous, in other words. So Paul just said last week, if you remember, that God will render to each one according to what they do, right? Remember that? Some of you remember that? For those of us who are a little more religious, our minds can immediately go to, well, if God's going to judge me for, you know, uh, call, call me to account for what I do. I mean, I'm not perfect, but, but I do okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but at least I know what I'm supposed to be doing and I try harder. I mean, I, you know... I remember hearing that the difference between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians try harder. Right? (laughs) Well, Paul says, you are not right with God because you have a Bible. You are not right with God because you go to church. And if that's what you're looking towards, just trying a little bit harder than other people... Then you need to understand, Paul says, the important thing is doing what God said, not being able to quote where he said it. You with me? Let's keep going, because the argument builds. 
uh, in this inescapable image. Verses 14 to 16 can be a little confusing. Here's why. There are two reasons why this can be confusing. Oftentimes, Christians can give the impression that moral good is not possible unless you're a Christian. Ever heard that? Maybe you've thought that, right? Maybe you've said that. Uh, I mean, we can own that as Christians. We can can own that. Uh, But what Paul is saying here is that there are times when people who have not ever read a letter of the Bible actually do the things that the Bible commands. That's what he's saying. And when he's saying, says that when you do that, you're a law unto yourself, he doesn't mean that you get your own standard. He's saying you're reflecting the standard that's already there. Okay? And here's why that makes sense in, in regards to the story. The Bible teaches that, that all of us were made with great dignity in the image of God. That humanity was made to reflect God back into the world. And so when we talk about the Ten Commandments, when we talk about the law, we have to understand that the law is not just some arbitrary rules that God made up. Right? I know we think of it that way. We think of it like curfew. Like, why did my parents choose that curfew as opposed to the one that my buddy got to do? Right? It is kind of arbitrary. That's not the way it is with the law of God. God's law is a reflection of him. He says don't steal because he doesn't take. He gives. He says don't, don't bear false witness because he, he doesn't lie. He tells the truth. And we were made to reflect that. We were made for the truth. We were made to be faithful to one another, not to commit adultery. Like things like that, right? That's what we were made for. And we were made to reflect that into the world. The problem is we betrayed God and we turned away from him. We we sought life apart from him. We didn't like reflecting him. We wanted to reflect us into the world. And so we became broken. But the image of God in us was not totally destroyed. So when, in in verse 14, when Paul says that those who do not have the law and yet do what the law requires are a law to themselves, what he means, again, is not a different standard from God's standard in the Bible, only that that we can actually still, in part, get some of that out into the world that we were made to. It's actually showing the truth of what the Bible says about our dignity. Now, some of us are thinking right now, well, Rick, if that's the case, why is God so upset? Right? People do some good things. Isn't that, isn't that right? Shouldn't, should, why is he so upset? That's true. I mean, I, God, the, people do do good things. But remember the context. Paul is trying to get through to us that our issue is universal. That our issue is universal. Non-Christians do good things. That's true. The issue is not doing good things once in a while. Because he also says in that very case that that those who are followers of God break the law. They do bad things, right? Paul is laying out a case very systematically that everyone in the world, religious, irreligious, right? Go to church, don't go to church. Everybody is on equal footing before God. We are on equal footing, whether you've grown up going to church your whole life or you've never set foot in one. With me? All right. So that's, that's what the true equality is about, being on equal footing. Now let's get a look at the false spirituality. Look down at verses 17 to 18. These verses really get to the core of what Paul is talking about. The jacket didn't last very long. Sorry. Um, he says this, but if you call yourself a Jew. Now, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, if you are a Jew. He said, if you call yourself such. 
And remember, Jews, uh, during the first century, when he's talking about that, he's like, the people of God. That's, we need to not think so much ethnically as much as the people of God. He's not saying if you are one, but if you call yourself one. And we're going to get to why in a second. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law and boast in God. Now, stick with me because this is important. To rely on the law is an important phrase. That word rely means to rest in. That's where your hope is found. I'm resting, relying on the law. I'm, I'm, Paul is saying if you rest yourself, if you find that you are, you, you can find rest in the fact that you have the right rules. And then he says if you rely on the law, and then he says if you boast in God. Now if you're a Christian, that sounds like a good thing, right? Boasting in God? Sounds great. Shouldn't I boast in God? Uh, yes, but not in the way that he's talking about. In the sense that's communicated here in the original language, uh, Paul is talking about boasting. This is an important distinction. Boasting in your relationship to God, not your relationship with God. In boasting in where you think you are positionally towards him versus being with him. Okay? Here's what I mean. Remember, a Jewish person in the first century looks at the world as being divided into two groups, Jews and everybody else. They are God's covenant people, his special people. And so they have a unique relationship towards him. They have the law. They have God's word. They have these past acts of redemption. Paul is talking about someone who's, who's resting in the law and, and finding themselves boasting in this kind of status that they think they have as a special person when it comes to God. This is the religious person who sees themselves as better simply because of what they know. Right? That's why Paul goes off on these litany. Teacher of children. Light into those in darkness. These, these are the folks who condescend to the lowly pagan who needs the knowledge they bring. But Paul's issue here, what he brings out is, oh, you think that's you, huh? Do you actually do what you preach? I mean, if you're relying on this law, do you actually do it? Or do you just talk about it? Now listen, don't check out if this is you. <laughs> Paul is saying, okay, you have it, that's great, but do you do it? Do you do it? Do you steal? You're like, no, I don't steal. I've never taken anything from a store. Yeah, never fudged anything. Well, stolen reputation. This is stealing. It's not just, not just stuff out of a store, right? Now you're thinking, well, I mean, Rick, nobody's perfect. But don't you need to be? I mean, if you're rest, if you're relying on that law, don't don't you kind of need to be? If you're trusting in the fact that you have God's standard, don't you have to actually meet it? Or is there one of those that I missed that says, thou shalt have my standard? Then Paul gives us this blanket statement in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You see, here's here's what we don't get. The standard that God gives, stay with me, because this this is sometimes a little hard to hear. The standard that God gives, the law, is not a take it or leave it standard. It's not a smorgasbord. Well, you know, I'm good with... uh, I've never bowed down to a statue, so I'm good with that. Uh, I'm... Ah, the lying, though. I mean, well, you know, God's not as big on that one as he is on adultery or, or, you know, or murder. Never murdered anyone. I'm good. It's not a smorgasbord. It's not a take it or leave it. And it's not graded on a curve. 
You know what I mean by that, right? I mean, some of y'all have been in, are, are still in school. Some of you haven't been for a while. But remember, remember what grading on a curve is? Where you, you take the lowest person in the class and you basically go, well, I'm going to call that a C. It was a four. <laughs> I know, but what will it say of me if all of my students got from 20 to four? You know, it's like, so we move that to a C. And then everything above that gets relatively shifted too, right? That's what we think it's like with God. That, yeah, I'm not perfect, but everyone to the left of me, I mean, they're a little worse. So, so God can go, I get a C, not an A. I'm not claiming an A, but I'll, I'll claim a C. I'm a solid C, maybe C minus. That's not God's standards. It's not graded on a curve. You don't get a retake. You don't get excuses. You either keep it completely or you've broken it utterly. And so if you want to place your hope in your ability to do right, that is your reality. That is your reality. Can I do it all or not? If I can make God happy with what I do, can you? How much can you do? How good are you? I know some of y'all are pretty good, but come on, man. Paul is saying, I don't care how much Bible you can quote me, how many years you've been going to church. If you're looking at that to make you right before God, it isn't the hearer's Or the havers who are righteous before God. It is the doers. Any takers? Yeah, I didn't think so. Now Paul gets to his entire point. Look down at verses 25 to 29. If you're not familiar with the Bible, then all this talk of (laughs) circumcision is really bizarre, right? And even if you are familiar with it, it seems a little strange. So let me explain. Uh, Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of God's promise. Sign of God's covenant with Abraham. It was, it was um, every little Jewish boy at the age of eight had this placed on them. And so if you were Jewish and a male, that was true of you. And in the first century, it was another thing that people would point to and say, I'm good with God. See, I'm in that special relationship towards him. I don't know if they would actually point to it. That would be awkward. But it was something that they would look to. Okay. Today, it would be more like baptism or church membership. Right? Here in this area, like, everybody's got a church. Everybody's on some role somewhere, right? Paul is systematically taking away every trust for us. See, like I said before, religion can be a sneaky way to keep us away from God. Because we can depend not on him, but on what we do. And Paul is systematically taking each of those things that we can play our trust in and taking away. Maybe, you know, sometimes that's our rule-keeping. Sometimes it's our baptism or some profession, some aisle walking we did like 30 years ago. Paul's point in all of this is that these covenant signs are just signs. And so when we place our hope in them, we act as if we've reached our destination when we've gotten to the road sign. You know what I mean? If that's a sign that's meant to point us in another direction, you don't stop at the sign and go, I've arrived. It says 150 miles, you know? So you have to keep going, and that's the whole point. Look at verse 28. Paul says, no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. Now, stop real quick, because this is important. Paul does not denigrate the sign. He doesn't say, that sign's stupid. No one needs that. He says, merely. Right? He says, merely. What he's saying is, if you have the sign but not what it signifies, it is useless. Okay? Even circumcision in the Old Testament was supposed to point to something else. It was supposed to point to the, 
a heart change, which is why he says it's not, it's not an outward circumstance that matters, it's the inward one. You see, that's the whole point. The Bible says our problem isn't behavior, it's the heart. You have to have a changed heart. And friends, you cannot change your heart. Your religious activity does not change your heart. In fact, the reality that you may be trusting in your religious rule-keeping probably shows your heart hasn't changed. And look, don't think that just because, you know, look, we saw people join the church this morning. They declared some things up here, right? And I trust better things for them than what I'm about to say. But just because you come up and do something like that doesn't mean necessarily that you're okay with God. I got words. You got them too, right? They didn't even say many words. They said, we do, right? That's not even many words. So there are probably, I assume week in and week out that there are folks in our, in our midst that are here worshiping with us. There are some who have never been to church. They're coming in for the first time here and some new that maybe they've never heard before. There are others of us who have been to church all our lives. And we may be members of Holy Cross since the beginning. And yet we're trusting really hard in the fact that we know the right things and do mostly the right things and we keep hitting the stuff we don't. The reality that you may be trusting in your rule keeping shows that your heart hasn't changed because you still want to be independent of God. You still want to do your own thing. See, part of why God gave the law, not the whole reason, but part of why, is to show us in our arrogance how incapable we are. It was to point beyond itself to our need for something greater than just better rules or the right rules. We don't need rules, we need a rescuer. And that's what that law was to point towards. Paul is saying that that right relationship with God is something that is a matter of the heart. It is something that the Spirit does, not our spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Not something we accomplish with better rules. And this means, friends, in all of your awesomeness, you can't do it. You can't accomplish it. This is the major difference between Christianity and every other world religion. They're going to give you a path to follow, rules to keep. Christianity gives you a person to trust. They tell you, here's what you need to do. But the bad news that leads to the good news of Christianity is that everything you try to do is part of the problem. You don't need new rules. You need a new heart. You need a rescuer. So given that, let's talk about true Christianity first with a true standard. Here's what Paul is trying to get across to us this entire chapter. Okay, Chapter 2 is done now. Here's what he's been trying to get across this entire chapter. If you want to bring your obedience before God as your hope, if you want to rely on your relationship to the rules, you best bring perfection because that's the standard. That's the standard. Now, some of us are probably like, that's not fair. right? How, how can God expect that of us if we can't do it? That's a great question. And that underlies the confusion that we have with what exactly Christianity says. God doesn't expect it of you. God wants your heart, not your activity. That is why Jesus came, friends. He didn't just come to save us from our rule-breaking. He came to save us from our damnable rule-keeping. 
What do I mean by that? I, I mean this. If you obey to get something from God, now don't check out on me. Listen close. If you obey to get something from God, maybe it's just to avoid punishment, right? Maybe it's to show that you're better than the person sitting next to you. And if you're married, don't discount that, right? Like maybe, maybe it's to, to keep God happy with you. Maybe it's to get that gold star in your cosmic star chart, right? If you, listen, if you can't fathom why you would obey God if you can't make him more happy with you, can I tell you, I don't think your obedience is pleasing to God. You are using it to reinforce your independence. Jesus came to save us from whatever we use to keep God distant from us. And some of us use our immorality. And some of us are like, man, I'm just, I am all sail and no rudder. Like, I, you just, I can't be restrained. And some of us, man, we use those chains. And we lock ourselves in that I am going to be great. And God's over here in the distance. We're like, but I'm, look how hard I'm working for you. Jesus accomplished what all of these signs and laws were pointing to you, pointing to. Look, what you and I couldn't do, keep God's law perfectly, he did. He died to bear the guilt of our failures. But it is his righteousness, his faithfulness, his perfection that we have before God when we have faith in him. Not ours. That is why Paul can say it is the doers of the law that will be justified. Because when we come to Christ, we place our faith in Him, we are united to Him. What is true of Him becomes true of us. So that before God, we have done the law. I haven't. He has. We aren't justified or made right before God by what we do. We are justified and made right with Him by what Christ has done. Now, let me put it a different way. Everybody comes, like if, if you're here and, and you're walking with Jesus right now, like you came from one of probably two different directions. Some of us come from very, uh, uh, like an irreligious background. That was me. Like I didn't come, I didn't grow up in church. I um, kind of, that, 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 was, that was me. And those of us who come from that background need more often than not to get a good dose of hearing that Jesus died for our sins. Right? That in that it's like, man, you don't know what I've done. And we need to hear Jesus died for us. But others of us, others of us didn't come from that background, did we? Like we grew up in church. We had, we, we had the star chart. We did all the good things. From folks who come from a more religious background, what you often need to hear is not that Jesus died for you, though he did. It's that Jesus lived for you. He kept the law in your place. And there's nothing more that you can do to add to it. Nothing more that you need to do to achieve God's smile. Look at God's true standard. But then look at the one who has kept it for you. The last thing I want to talk about, though, is true obedience. All right, that's talking about the standard, but let's talk about true obedience. Because with all that Paul is saying here, uh, especially the last two weeks... It can make it sound like he's really down on um, the idea of uh, the standard. That there's somehow obedience is a bad thing, right? And that's an easy confusion because Christianity deals with the heart. Here's what I mean. There are two types of obedience. 
There's a kind of obedience that seeks to gain a status before God. Like, I need to do something, uh, I need to do something to get something from Him. And then there's an obedience to God's Word uh, that comes because we've been given a status before God. You see the difference? One is trying to get something, one is a response to something. See, you and I know that when it comes to meeting a standard, most of us generally are looking for the path of least resistance, right? What's the minimum bar I have to reach? Like, we, we all do this, right? You, you see this the most... <laughs> See this the most with, uh, with folks who are heading t- towards marriage or, or, or dating, and they come and talk to you, and they're like, okay, but how far can we go before it hits that sin level, right? I mean, they all, we're, we're doing that. And the, the point, the question, that question, amongst others, is what's the minimum I have to do for God to be happy? It's, it's, uh, it's obedience to avoid judgment. But there's another kind of Obedience. And it's not motivated by uh, fear of judgment. It's motivated by love. It's motivated not by self-interest so much as God's glory. It's the kind that looks at Jesus and says, this one gave everything for me. Even though I was undeserving. I want to honor him. What can I do to honor him? See, Christian obedience is based on the latter. We don't obey to get things from God. You can't. Jesus has already done it all. Everything we can get has been given in Christ. Paul kind of talked about that in Ephesians when he said he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Pretty sure every means every. It's in Christ. It's what he has done. Which means we obey out of love for Jesus because he has freely given his love to us. And the same thing is true with something else Paul talks about here. Knowing God's word. Right? Knowing it. Having it. There's a study of scripture, Christian. Uh, there's a study of learning theology that's born out of a desire to gain a status. Isn't there? Look at what I know. Look at the answers I have. Look how smart I am. Then there's a study of God's word, a study of theology that comes from wanting to get to know this God who has loved you so much. He's given you so much. Wanting to seek to think his thoughts after him. To love what he loves, to hate what he hates, and to grow in your wonder of him. One is great, one not so much. Now here's the kicker. If you have been made new, if the Spirit of God has given you that new heart, things like obedience and growing in our knowledge of him must come. That doesn't mean that there's not activity involved, it just means... It's something that begins to happen. Because Jesus doesn't save us just from sin's penalty, but also from its power. Which means that it must come. But it must come from a different motive. Always from a different motive. You see, the gospel frees us to pursue these things. To pursue obedience. To pursue uh, our, our intimate knowledge of God. And it frees us to do that. Because we don't have the pressure of perfection. Because Jesus has already achieved all of that perfection for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is, it is uh, dangerous preaching against religion in a religious service. It's dangerous for, two, for a couple reasons, Lord. It's, it's dangerous uh, because of our reaction to it. and It's, our, it's dangerous because of our um, uh, tendency to want to ignore it. 
So Lord, I, I pray this morning for any in this room who use religion to keep you away from them. I pray that you would convict them of that. Draw them back to yourself. Lord, create in this church an obedience, certainly, but an obedience that is born out of a deep love for you and what you've done. Not out of a desire to get anything more from you. Because you have given us everything. Do not let us stay in our independence. Instead, let us run to the cross. Joyfully depend on our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Joyfully depend on our Savior who lived for us and gave us his righteousness. Do this for the sake of your name because we can't change our own hearts. So we'll give you glory as you do it. But also for our good that we would live as we were intended to live. Reflecting you into the world in dependence on you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.